0: Well, I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles, if you have them, in whatever form that might be, and uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 15. It's happened to all of us at one time or another, and I don't know about you, but in my house, it usually began with a question. Hey, have you seen my but actually that's not the question that really took place in our house. It was more like, Hey mom, have you seen my notebook? Have you seen my computer? And if that's not bad enough, sometimes it's me, honey, have you seen my, and whatever the fill in the blank is. There's that realization that we all have when something has been misplaced. Or lost it's a it's a realization that hits all of us there's this panic there's this emptiness there's this I'm losing it Uh, most recently for us it was a jar of buttons long story but you know I I'm losing it where did I put that I knew I put it in a safe place no I didn't I, I knew I did it can be as mundane as a favorite shirt it can be as serious as a wallet with all your identification or now, even worse, your cell phone. Losing something always causes anxiety. And finding it is always a cause for celebration. I've been dubbed the finder in our house. I, I will tell you this, when our children were younger, I was undefeated in contact lens finds. I found them all. And there was always cause for celebration, especially from dad who knew this wasn't going to impact his wallet a bit. In our passage today, and I'm gonna read just 10 verses of it for you here in a moment. We find first a very familiar scene that is played out several times in Luke. With that in mind, listen to these 10 verses in Luke chapter 15, verses one to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners we were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a, suppose a woman has ten several silver coins. And she loses one of them doesn't she light a lamp sweep the house and search carefully till she finds it and when she finds it she calls her friends and neighbors together and says rejoice with me i have found my lost coin in the same way i tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of god over one sinner who repents jesus is in this very familiar scene And remember, as Luke recounts these scenes, sometimes the statement is made repeatedly because Jesus was in different locations at different times and there was no video. And so the oral tradition made it that things get repeated. So Jesus is once again with tax collectors and sinners surrounded by people that the religious leaders have already determined are unworthy. Just think about that for a second, real quick, little sidelight. Who am I to determine that somebody is unworthy of God's love? Hey, that's way above my pay grade. I am never the one to consider who's worthy of God's love. It's not my love. It's God's love. And yet, if we're honest, I think there are times we each struggle. We wonder how could God love that person? Now, hopefully we're wise enough to keep that struggle between us and God. But the Pharisees, they muttered, I think they muttered just loud enough that Jesus could hear, just loud enough. Who is this one? He, he thinks he's a religious leader. He thinks he's a, the teacher. He thinks he's the one we're to follow and he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. How can they be worthy? Now, we've seen these two groups before in Luke. Real quick, tax collectors were Jewish citizens who made agreements with Roman officials to collect a certain amount of taxes. And what made them so despised was the fact that they took advantage of the situation that the government allowed them. Let me put it in 21st century terms. Let's say a person signs a contract with the Roman government and says, I'm gonna go into this village and uh, when I'm done at this village, uh, I will collect the $100,000 of taxes that are required by the Roman government from this village. And uh, so, he, but, so he signs the contract, says, I'm gonna get that to you. But the freedom he had was anything over and, uh, over and above the 100,000 that he could collect became his commission. So if he goes into that village with the authority of the Roman government, and the village doesn't know how much they're supposed to pay, and he collects $200,000, he fulfills his contract, gives $100,000 to the Roman government, and he just walks away with a $100,000 profit. And the tax collectors got wealthy, and they were considered traitors. Sinners is more of a general term. You see, any person that the religious elite determined was unworthy of their time and attention was a sinner. Sinners were avoided because it was very obvious to everybody that God did not bless sinners. Sinners weren't worthy. So sinners obviously included Gentiles and Samaritans. Depending on the group, sinners would include women. And anybody else who didn't follow the rules the way the Pharisees made the rules, was a sinner. So you get the picture. Why is Jesus hanging out with people that we don't like? Yeah. it's that old adage, you know, when, when, when the people I don't like, I think God doesn't like, I, I'm, I'm in trouble. Jesus is hanging out with the people they don't like, and obviously if the religious elite doesn't like them, God shouldn't like them. And the person who says he's the son of God shouldn't like them, but here he is hanging out with them, he's having a meal with them, he's enjoying conversation with them. And so Jesus, in response, is going to tell three parables. Actually, there's going to be a total of five parables. We're just going to look at three in Luke 15. And as we look at these parables, I want you to have this thought in mind. If I were to summarize today's sermon in one sentence, it would be this. God actively searches for and joyfully receives those who were once far from him, and we should as well few chapters down the road in Luke 19, 10, Jesus is going to to say the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. God is searching for and joyfully receiving those who were once far from him. And if that's what God does, then I ought to be doing that. I ought to be thinking about and seeking and building friendships with people who are far from God so that maybe God can use me to help usher them into relationship with him now the manner in which jesus begins the two parables that i've read for you is a way that draws everybody in suppose one of you as soon as you hear that you're thinking okay i can put myself in this position and the first parable this man has 100 sheep according to scholars that would have been a a medium-sized flock the the average flock in in that day there were some that were as small as 20 sheep and some that were as large as 200 so This is a guy that's just average, not above average, not below average. He's right there in the middle. Shepherds in the ancient Near East took a great deal of care and personal interest in their sheep. And every night when they would bring the sheep from the pasture to the sheepfold, they would count them and so the shepherd counts it was like when i was a youth pastor we had to get kids back on the bus you know we had a checklist we didn't want to leave anybody behind at the 7-eleven uh so you know we he counts them and he gets up to 99 and where's and they they named their sheep but we won't name a sheep right now where's that sheep i got to believe maybe he pulled it back out and he counted them again maybe he missed it sheep aren't really they 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 kind of mill around He realizes he's missing a sheep. He's not willing to take that loss. He's not willing to take the loss personally because he cared deeply about his sheep. He's not willing to take the loss financially because the sheep were his income. He's not willing to take the loss. It's too valuable for him to just say, well, I got 99, you know. Two out of three ain't bad. 99 out of 100 ain't bad. No, I need 100 sheep. And everybody there knows the value of the sheep to the shepherd. Everybody in this audience, they know exactly what's going on. Now, Luke says he leaves the sheep in the open field. Probably he had a hired hand. He had somebody with him. You don't just leave sheep alone because when you come back, you'll have one sheep and you'll be missing 99. So he leaves the sheep there and he, he, he just makes sure that they're cared for and he goes. We don't know how far he sh- searches. And think of that anxiety. You ever lost a, a puppy? Ever had a dog run away? My well, dog ran away one night and was gone for an entire night. And, you know, and I remember walking down the prairie path just looking for our dog and wanting to find our dog. And, uh, you know, eventually she came running back home like, here I am. Everything's fine. <laughs> Smacker. But, you know, he goes and, and he's, he, he's thinking the worst. Maybe my, maybe my sheep is going to be at the bottom of a ravine. Maybe worse yet, it's going to be torn to shreds by a wild animal. And as he's walking, as he's looking, it's getting darker. He sees a little bit of motion. And he goes over and there's his sheep. It's okay. A little scraped up, but okay. And Jesus says he takes that sheep, he puts it on his shoulder. He's not going to let that lamb get away. He's not going to, he's going to take personal responsibility to make sure it gets safely back to the flock. And he gets back to the flock and he calls everybody to celebrate. It's a huge deal. Just as if you lost your wallet and called me and said, Pastor Scott, have you seen my wallet? And I go crawling under the pews and everywhere and I don't find it and I I can't find it. And a day later you call me and said, I found it. You know, it was in my other shorts. I got it. I'll celebrate with you. Same thing here. But the point that Jesus wants to make is far greater than a lost sheep. The point is that he wants the people to see how much God celebrates when even one person turns to him. Before I wrap that up, let's go to the second parable. It's it's very similar. Uh, And and, and, and I want you to notice a pattern here that I I ran across in my reading. Really interesting. There is a unique pattern in the book of Luke. Whenever there's an account told about a man, it's followed by an account of a woman. For instance, you have Zachariah in the first chapter and you have his wife Elizabeth. You have Mary and Joseph. You have Simeon and you have Anna. You have a shepherd and now you have this woman. And and it seems that Luke wants to provide this balance for his readers living in a male dominated patriarchal society. He wanted them to realize, folks, the kingdom isn't just for tax collectors and sinners. The kingdom is for men and for women. It's for both. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. So we have this woman, and she has 10 silver coins. Now, most likely, those silver coins were the sum total of her dowry for her wedding. So that if anything happened to her husband, and we're not told whether she's a widow or not, But if anything happened to her husband, those silver coins became the investment that would help her survive because without a husband, she had no means of support or income. Oftentimes, what a woman would do would take those silver coins and weave them into like a headband and put them over her headdress. And so they were there as kind of an adornment, but she always knew where they were. She loses one of these coins. Somehow it falls off and she's mortified. Don't raise your hands, but have you ever, women, lost the diamond on your engagement ring? Those of you who are married, I remember a time when that happened in a relationship I know of very well. And I remember the the emptiness and and the, oh no, what do we do? And cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching and everything else that went on and and just the, the heartbreak of that. Well, this is that times 10 because this is her investment for the future. This is her security her financial security and so she, she has that empty feeling how am i going to find something so small these coins weren't much probably weren't even the size of a quarter so she begins to light a light looks in the corners can't see anything it's very dusty probably dirt floors she sweeps not not vigorously but just kind of sweeping at one point she hears something and she sees a glint in the dust. And she finds her coin. It, she finds it. She reaches out to everyone. My, my coin has been found. Celebrate with me. My diamond has been found. We're going to the jeweler right now to get it reset and soldered in and anchored in. And it's never going to come out again. It's exciting. In both parables at the very end, Jesus says, in the same way. In the same way, the father responds with joy and celebration. When someone outside of God's family, a sinner, and notice Jesus doesn't qualify that. He uses it in a general term. When anyone outside of God's family has heard the message of the kingdom, responds to the message of the kingdom, and turns from that path that was going away from God, and they turn and they begin on a path to God, Anytime that happens, there is rejoicing. God rejoices. Heaven rejoices. The angels rejoice. And, and if, if it's just one person, that's okay. It's worthy of a celebration. It's not that in the first parable, the 99 don't matter. It's not that the other nine coins don't matter, but they're already in the fold. They're already on the headband. The celebration for them has already happened god celebrates the one who was not part of his family and now becomes a part and that's the point in these first two parables note well that the shepherd and the woman go out and search for what is lost that's the difference between the two parables the three parables in this one in these two they go out and search why did jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners why because they were far from God. They were, as it were, lost. They were the ones that the father had sent the son to reach out to, to bring them home, as it were. I want you to remember this, following the example of Jesus, I need to find natural ways to connect to people who are far from God. I need to find natural ways. I know years ago, it used to be we could just invite people to come to church and they would go okay yeah i haven't been to church in a while i'll go to church that's not going to work anymore folks that is not the first step why should i go to church when i have a beautiful day to enjoy why should i go to church when i worked six days last week and i got to get groceries and change oil in the car and come on we got to find new ways to be engaged and involved with our neighbors and our community. Remember last week, for those of you here, it's on Facebook video if you wanna go see it. uh, Jim told us about his friend Bosch and how that, you know, when they got together, they played Scrabble. That's a great word picture. Primo wrestlers playing Scrabble. But they played Scrabble together and, and they had a meal together and eventually they began to talk and share with one another we need to be engaged with people not as projects as friends have dinner together have cookouts together do common things together enjoy hobbies together help one another listen to one another be a safe person you see our job is to be that seeking as it were that searching spending time building relationships trusting god with the results we engage in the process, we pray for them, we connect with them, we pray some more, we build relationships, we pray some more, and eventually Jesus will do his work because he said, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws them, John 6, 44. Or we have another option. We can be like the religious leaders. We can choose to back away from anybody who doesn't look like us, who doesn't act like us, who doesn't agree with everything that we agree with, but that's not the pattern of Jesus. I got to believe when Jesus was eating dinner with tax collectors and sinners, there was some stuff he heard that he wasn't too comfortable with. But he wasn't there to be comfortable. He was there to be involved with them. And I got to believe they asked him some questions. Now, he could answer every question, right? He, he was there before the questions were asked. You know, He knows the answers before you ask the questions. But he listened. He was safe. That's who he wants us to be. And so that begs the question who's acceptable to God who can be brought into his kingdom and the next parable, the third parable, the longer parable of the more and the more popular parable of the three, I think provides us some answers that I I think will provide they'll surprise us. This parable makes it very clear that there are three different entities. There's a, a wealthy father and believed by just about everybody that that is representative of God. And there are two sons, a younger son and an older son, representing, in many respects, the two groups that we're dealing with. The younger son would represent the tax collectors and the sinners, and the older son representing the religious elite, and sometimes you and me. The story is familiar, so I'm not going to read that at all, but let me just kind of summarize it as we move along here. Um, This man had two sons, and the younger one comes to his dad, and he was a very wealthy man, and he says, Dad, I want you to give me my share of the estate. In other words, I want my inheritance now. Sometimes I've known people who have, before they passed away, made a decision to give some of their inheritance to their children, maybe to buy a house or something like that. But I don't think in my lifetime I've ever known a child to go to their parent and say, I want my inheritance now. And in the ancient Near East, that was like the worst thing you could do. That was the the greatest insult you could give to your dad. Dad, I wanna treat you like you are now dead. And I want you to give me my share of the estate now. Now, in that time period, The inheritance was divided into thirds. And uh, so the oldest son always got two thirds of whatever the father owned. And then any other sons would get have to divide the last third up. So in this case, the older son would get two thirds and the younger son would get a third of whatever the father owned. Now, this is not as easy as going down to the bank and just cashing in part of your 401k and and having a check cut, you know, and and having it or having it electronically deposited into your son's account. No, because the father's wealth was bound up in land and livestock. So what had to happen was the father had to liquidate a third of his land and a third of his livestock to give his son the inheritance. But if you're an ancient Near Eastern listener and you're listening to this, as soon as Jesus says that, you don't even get that far. You're waiting for Jesus to say, so the father began to beat the son to half to death and to pound on him and ran him out of the house and told him never to come back. But that's not what this father does. This father divides his property between the two boys and gives it to his younger son. That is shocking to the original hearers. It's an act of grace that would put the entire farming operation in a difficult place. But that's what the father does. The son gets everything together. Now he's got it made, you know, he knows everything. He's experienced everything. Uh, I figure he had to be probably like, like 18 or 19, maybe 20. You know, I, I know what I know what life's about. I'm going to go live it up now. Uh, we don't know how old he is, but he takes all that money and he goes off to a distant country. I'm not living in this squatty place anymore. I'm telling I hear that all the time from, uh, kids. Oh, I got to get out of Wheaton. I got to get out of Wheaton. You know, uh, when one of my daughters graduated from high school, everybody was going, I got to get away to college. I am not going to college of dropouts. I'm not going to college of dreams there in Glen Ellen, I am not going to college of DuPage. I am going, I'm going to make it in the big time. And my daughter told me that by her second semester, she saw about half of her graduating class back at college at DuPage. You know, we, we think we know it all, right? And so this son thinks he knows it all. He goes out to this country. He's got money. And when, he's got, when you got money, you got friends. You got money. We all got money. And he doesn't invest it. He just spends because it's going to last forever. And he spent everything. And now a famine hits the land. So not only does he have no money, he has no way of making money. He blows it all no matter how you look at it he loses his money he's already lost his family and he loses his friends or his community he's destitute so what's he do he finds a job slopping pigs now remember this is a jewish audience pigs are an unclean animal so uh, this young man has fallen as low as one can fall He is at the low of the low. And and, you know, as I thought about that, and this is a freebie, you're not even going to see a fill in the blank for this one. I think sometimes God gives us enough grace to let us hit bottom. Uh, I think sometimes God just gives us enough grace to let our lives just go. But the next step is ours. Luke tells us in verse 17, when he came to his senses, It's like literally he came to himself. It's like he'd been living in this fog of arrogance, in this fog of ease, and he comes to himself. And he realizes how much he had given up, how much he's lost, how far he sunk. And he decides on one thing, I'm going to go home. Knowing that he has nothing to offer, knowing that he may not even be accepted back, uh, he decides to go home. And he rehearses a speech. Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven and, uh, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So just take me on as a slave and just let me live here and work for you. We don't know how long the son was gone. We don't know how fast he blew through whatever he blew through financially. But we get the idea. We get the idea that the father had been waiting for him. We get the idea that the father had been watching because verse 20 says, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. We get the idea the father had been going out, as it were, to the front porch every day and looking as far as he could look down the road. And one day, one day, he sees just on the horizon a figure. And as he sees it, He begins to notice. I know that walk. You know that, don't you, parents? You you can walk, you can see your kids far away. You can pick your kids out. I know that walk. I know that slouch. I know that. I I recognize that. He sees his son. And he realizes that's his boy. Now there are certain things ancient Near Eastern fathers did not do. Ancient Near Eastern fathers do not give their kids the inheritance before time. Ancient Near Eastern fathers do not run ever, especially wealthy ancient Near Eastern fathers. They don't run, it is beneath them. It is undignified, it is humiliating. And they especially don't run towards someone who has wronged them. You have to come to me. You have to come to me on my terms. You have to come to me and you have to beg. But this father doesn't do that. This father sees him. He's filled with compassion and he runs to his son. He runs to him and he throws his arms around him. And and the boy starts to give his speech and he won't even let him finish his speech. The father would have none of it immediately he restores him to his place in the family and he celebrates him and he welcomes him home. I think the first point Jesus is making in all three of these parables is that when any person, any person comes to the point that he or she realizes they've been far from God and they hear maybe for the 20th time, maybe for the 100th time, they hear that reminder of the kingdom and for us it would be that reminder that jesus died on the cross that jesus paid the penalty for their sin and they finally say yes to jesus they finally respond to his grace they finally seek his forgiveness it's as if the father the king of the universe runs to them and celebrates them and welcomes them home Last weekend, as you all know, our children and grandchildren came home, as it were, and it was an amazing weekend. It ended far too quickly. I've told some of you, we ended wanting more, which is really the right way it should end, right? You don't want it to end. Don't let the screen door hit you on the way out. You want to end it with more. And... While they did a great job, our kids did a great job of filling the time with activities that really everybody participated in in different ways. Charlene and I stated that the really the best part was, yes, those were all fun. We would do it again. I can't wait to what they see what they have lined up for next anniversary, but uh, we would do it all again. But you know, the best part for us was just having everybody together and having everybody together and getting along. It was It was great there is something special about home in his poem death of a hired man Robert Frost writes home is the place that when you go there they have to take you in home is great I love the concept of home and and so we have this need built into us for home for belonging The son had come home and the father rejoiced. The father didn't care what had happened to him. He rejoiced. It was not a time to talk about consequences. It was a time to celebrate. He had come home. Would you hear this today? If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. There is nothing that you have done that cannot be forgiven by God. Let me put it a different way. God's grace is more than sufficient to forgive all our sin. You see, the tax collectors and the sinners, they knew. They knew they were bad. They knew they were far from God. And and they found in Jesus one who saw past their sin to the fact that they could be forgiven. You and I, nobody has to list for us the ways we've messed up. We're really keenly aware of the ways we've messed up. Uh, it's easy to catalog them. Sometimes in our lowest moments, we kind of rehearse some of those ways we've mixed up and think messed up and go, yeah, I wish I wouldn't have done that. But it, it's too late now. I live with those consequences. I live with that reality. God is complete in his forgiveness. The person who has yet to respond to Jesus because they think they've been too bad needs to know that in a sense, the heavenly father is looking for you to come down the road. He's looking for you to come back home. He wants to welcome you. The father brings him in. He puts the signet ring on his finger, gives him a robe, puts shoes on his feet, all symbols of being back in the family. Then he kills the fatted calf, you know, the the one that had been out that they had been waiting for. You know, it wasn't Kobe beef. They weren't massaging that calf, but they were taking good care of it. We're saving this for a special occasion. And there is a party to end all parties and friends and neighbors are brought in. They're rejoicing with this father. But there's another brother, the older brother, the brother who didn't run off the brother who didn't demand his inheritance. He's been out in the field working just like he'd been out in the field working every day. He's been faithful. He has served well. He hears the party going on and he wonders, I didn't get an invitation. How did I get left out of this party? And then he learns that his good-for-nothing brother has come back and he is incensed. He is enraged that there's a party for his brother. And now it's his turn to insult the father. You see his place as the older brother should have been in the house. He should have gone out, gotten dressed and gotten in the house and started greeting guests. That's his job. But he refuses to even go into the house. What that does is humiliates his father. His father has to in humiliation, come out of the house, and do what no ancient Near Eastern wealthy man would do. Beg his son to come in. As the elder son refuses his father. He doesn't even address his father with respect. Look at verse 29. But he answered his father. Look. And you got, you got to hear those words. Angry sputtering maybe coming out of clenched teeth all these years i have been slaving for you and you never never disobeyed your orders yet you never even gave me a goat that i could party with my friends and celebrate but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home you kill the fat calf for him get the anger get the vitriol there He doesn't even call it his brother, this son of yours. I have no relationship with him. When you're gone, he's gone. In his mind, mind, he deserves more, right? I've earned a better seat at the table. In his mind, I'm better than my brother. My goodness should be enough, dad. But look what the father says, my son, You're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. He invites him inside. The father's word tells the elder son that he knows the truth and he's calling him to act on the truth he knows. Come inside. Jesus leaves that story open-ended. He leaves the son With the words of his father ringing in his ears, he was lost and he's found, he was dead and now he's alive. What do we do with that older brother? I want to look at two things here as we wrap this up. First of all, it's clear Jesus is pointing to the religious elite. Like the older brother, they believe they had already earned their way into the good graces of God. Like the older brother, they believe they had already earned a seat at the table. They have already been obedient. And we learned a lot. And so let me kind of give you a summary of that. The elder brother believed that his father owed him because he'd been so good. In fact, he's angry, not just because there's a party, but at the fact that nobody ever threw him a party. Keller postulates, and I think he's right on this, that this young, this older brother was doubting his father's love. Have you ever doubted God's love for you? Oh, no, I would never do that, Pastor Scott. Well, let me ask you, when you and I think that because we're good people, that hard things shouldn't come into our lives, do we get angry at God when they do? Then we're like the older brother. When we believe that uh, I don't deserve this because I'm a good person, I deserve better because I'm a good person. We may be a good person. Everybody thinks they're a good person. But we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where nobody is exempt from difficulties. Nobody is exempt from hard times. Nobody is exempt from illness and struggle. We're not exempt from that. Nobody's exempt from maybe losing a job. Nobody's exempt from that. We can either doubt God's love and become bitter like the older brother. Or we can repent of our presumed goodness and seek God. Because if we don't do that, we'll become embittered. And we may refuse to enter into deep relationship with the Father. You see, my good deeds do not automatically get me a seat at the table. I still need to receive God's gift of salvation made available through the death of Christ. Let me summarize the two brothers this way. No one is so bad as to forfeit God's grace. No one is so good as to earn God's grace. The reality is no matter who you are, no matter how bad you think you've been or how good you think you've been, you and I all need God's grace. We all need to realize like the sheep, the coin and the younger brother or the older brother, we are in different ways lost. The younger brother lost because of his deeds. The older brother lost because he thought his goodness was good enough. We need the love and the grace and the kindness and the pursuit of the heavenly father. Timothy Keller postulates that a true older brother would have never stayed home. He would have gone and searched for his younger brother and brought him home because family was that important. And he goes on to say, we do have a true older brother. Jesus is the true older brother. He came and he sought us and he longs to bring us home. The question I want to leave with you today is simply this. Upon whom are you depending on for your eternal soul? Now, before you give me the quick, simple Sunday school churchy response that one day when you were five, you gave a thumbs up at a a, a Bible camp and said, I want Jesus to be my forever friend. And I think that's great. I hope you did that. Or I prayed a prayer. The question isn't that you did that. The question is, what is your relationship with the father now? how has god changed you how is jesus growing you how is the holy spirit moving in your life because when we respond to bad things blaming god then we're like that older brother what we need is to depend on god more and more it's more than a thumbs up or a prayer of confession It's a daily life of learning to depend on him. That is what God seeks. And when we come into that dependent relationship, all of heaven rejoices. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this space that you've given us that we can enjoy. Thank you for our friends who've joined us from uh, just all over the place on Facebook Live. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that, as the song says, he sought us and bought us with his redeeming love. May we daily seek you, daily lean into you, daily learn to depend on you. In Jesus' name, amen.